1 Corinthians 14 is about the orderliness of worship, right? It is about the importance of worship and the, and the importance of how we worship. Just as important as worship itself, just as important as the act of worshiping, it is how we worship. And that is Paul's main argument in 1 Corinthians 14. Let's talk about worship for a bit. Um, so there was, uh, I think I briefly mentioned about this person last week. Um, there was an elder uh, in, uh, in a Korean church, in Falls Church. Um, his name was Elder Lee Hidon, and he passed away uh, September, uh, three, a couple of months ago. And this man, he passed away when he, when he was 61. For the 61 years of his life, oh, he lived large for the Lord, right? Um, he was the vice chairman of the World Trade, or, Trade Center, trade organization. Um, he's, that's one of the largest you know, trade organizations in the world, and he was a vice chairman. First Asian to earn that position. Yay us, right? Um, so that position entailed him traveling all around the world, meeting with important dignitaries and, and, and trade leaders of each country, right, to, to establish trade policies. So he would frequently travel all over the world. He lived a very, very busy life. But what's, what's amazing about this person is that he didn't just see that role as a, a, a mere position that he could, you know, earn respect for. He genuinely saw that position as a way to mission, as, 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 a, as, a, as, a, as a way to do missions. So he would go to those countries. Not only would he go to those countries, he would not only meet with the important business leaders, he would frequently go speak at churches in those countries that he visited, teach about God, teach about his testimony, like, you know, share his testimony and teach about God. He says, the reason I think God called me to that position was to do missions. So that's what he did. Every morning, he would get up at 4 o'clock in the morning, go to the early morning prayer service. He would memorize one chapter of Bible, 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 Bible verses, one, like, a, couple, a few Bible verses a day. He would, every moment of his life, he, 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 had, he has worked to please the Lord. But what was more impressive about him, in my opinion, is that no matter where he was in the world, every Sunday he made it a point to come to Falls Church, Virginia, every Sunday and worship at his home church. There were times, he says, when he was in Europe Saturday night, he would catch the red eye back to D.C., attend the worship service at his church, fly go back to Dulles and fly out from Dulles. Even, like, he didn't even stop at home. From, the, from Europe to the airport to his home church worship, he'll go back to the airport and he'll fly back to Europe. He will do that, multi, like, you know, he will, he will do that frequently. And someone asked him, why don't you just worship you know, wherever you are? Find a church in Switzerland or something and worship there. And his answer was, I come to my church every Sunday. Because one of the ways that he, I glorify God the best in this life is to worship with my local congregation every Sunday. 
he would purposely travel from the corners of the world to Falls Church, Virginia, every week to worship with his people. It is because he knew, despite all these great things that he did in the name of, for, for God, the greatest God-honoring thing that he could do is to worship together with his local congregation, with his brothers and sisters in Christ in the local congregation. That is what his life is teaching us. The best way for all of us to glorify God is to come worship with his people every Sunday. Coming here Worshiping together, participating in worship is glorifying his name and it is edifying his people. You don't need to go far. You don't need to do great things. Simply come and participate in worship and build each other up. So that's why I think many churches, you know, um, around the country, I think people are, you know, suing the local government, getting court ordinances so they could physically gather. And the reason why they're doing this, right, it's not because, you know, they want to be rebels, but these people who purposely come together and who just refuse to just meet online, these people who risk their, I guess, health, I suppose, and risk their you know, um, civil government, like, you know, like, you know, fining them or something. The reason why they're taking this risk is that people, there are some people, congregations in this country that know that the best way to worship God is come together and worship him on his day. I'm not saying this to shame those who are listening online. I'm not, I'm not saying anything like that, right? But I'm just saying that because there, is, there are people who recognize the importance of physical gathering. But just as important as coming together and worshiping God, just as important as gathering together and worshiping, what is also important is the manner in which, how we, how we worship God. Right? I think it's clear. The scripture is clear. Just because we come and worship him, it doesn't mean God, that any kind of worship is, is accepting to God. One of the best examples is King Saul, right? One of the, way, one of the reasons why God, God rejected King Saul is because King Saul did not follow God's decree of worship, right? When he was fighting against the enemies and he, they needed to you know, worship before fighting the enemies, but Samuel, the prophet the, the prophet, the priest, was very slow to come and conduct worship. So what Saul did was, rather than waiting for Samuel to come as God commanded, he just offered sacrifices on his own and went to battle. That's why God rejected him, because one of the reasons why God rejected Saul is because Saul worshipped God improperly. It's clear. Not only is worshiping him important, how we worship him is important. What is the way in which, how, how are we to worship God properly? 1 Corinthians 14 is saying, 
You should worship God in an orderly, intelligible way. He's, he, chaotic worship is not God honoring. That's what Paul is trying to say in 1 Corinthians 14. We worship God in orderly, intelligible ways. Let's first, let's first talk about how the Corinthians gathered. What type of gathering that Paul envisioned. Verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word or instruction or revelation, or a tongue, or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So what Paul, the, 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 the image that Paul has of worship is, I think he's, he's image, imagining like a house church. right? He's imagining a house church, and everyone brings their spiritual gifts and uses their spiritual gifts during worship. As an example I can give you is, um, I think in February, <clears throat> I, stepped, I, I visited the Arlington Small Group. Is it called the Arlington Small Group? All right, it's called the Arlington Small Group. And in that small group, oh boy, oh boy, they, 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 they had dinners every, every small group. And it was wonderful, right? Some one person brought like an Indian dish, right? Um, the other person brought Brussels sprouts, I think. Um, Ricky made his home bread, right? Everyone like, brought a dish from home, right? And they were, we, were eat, we were eating together, and we were discussing about the Lord. It was like this mutual participatory type of worship that that group has done that evening. And it was so encouraging and spiritually nourishing, as well as physically nourishing. That's the image that Paul has, I think, in verse 26. So the type of image that Paul is instructing in verse 26 is different from the way we worship, where people just come together to listen to one guy, right? But that's not the image of worship that Paul has in mind in verse 26. It means everyone coming together, right, with a hymn. Hymn is usually an Old Testament psalm, right? Some person will just... You will gather together in my living room. Okay, not my living room because, you know, basement, right? Bigger space. You will gather together in my basement, and some, people would, some person will just start singing the song, and all of us follow. And then another person gets up, and he says, I have an instruction for the Lord, and shares a biblical passage and interprets it, right? And another person, right, speaks praise in tongues, and the other person gets up and interprets what was just prayed for. So it's like a more organic, participatory type of worship that Paul has in mind in verse 26, right? Imagine that kind of worship where we gather together in my basement, right? And all of us, rather than just listening to Hill sing and me, me talk, all of us participating in worship together. Won't that be a nourishing environment, a great environment? I think that's what Paul had in mind when he, when he was writing verse 26, but what happened to the Corinthians? They gathered, that's what they did, but the issue with their gathering is it was chaotic. Rather than, you know, the worship service being orderly, everyone would just like speak at once, right? People would stand up out of a blue, out of, out of turn, and start speaking in a language that no one understood. 
then another person would stand up and, you know, prophesy things that, you know, we had no idea what that guy was talking about, right? And then women were, a few women were getting up and asking all these questions in the middle of service, right? It was just bedlam, chaos. And Paul is rebuking that. Paul is saying, worshiping like that, he's saying, I know all of you are crazy gifted with these gifts. But worshiping like that in a chaotic way, it's not honoring God. Why? Because God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of peace and order. Just because you say you worship God, that is not enough. You have to worship God properly. How do you worship God properly? With order and intelligibility. And you can see this in the way that he instructs people how to worship. Verse 27. If anyone speaks in tongues, two or at, or at most three should speak, one at a time. And if someone must interpret, verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. What does he mean? He's saying, all right, if you have a gift of tongues, Come to PJ's house, right? And if you have the gift of tongues, people are allowed to speak in tongues. But there's a condition. Two or three max, right, can speak in tongues. And if you're going to speak in tongues in public worship, you better have an interpreter to interpret your tongue. If you do not have an interpreter during public worship service, then don't speak that tongue in worship. Go home. Speak tongues to God, right? It's between you and God. If there is no interpreter, don't speak in public worship. Go home and speak to God in your tongue. Paul says, gift of tongue exists, yes. Like you can pray in strange languages. God has blessed you with that. That's great. But more important than the exercising of your gift is you need, your brothers and sisters must benefit from your gift. And if you don't have an interpreter, your brothers and sisters will not benefit from your gift of tongues. So don't speak if you don't have an interpreter. I wonder how many tongue-speaking churches in the area actually listen to this, this, this advice. You, hear, you see something like, if you go to a Pentecostal charismatic event, you see tons of people just rattling on in, with different noise without no one interpreting what they're saying. Paul is saying such practice is inappropriate. Right? My wife has the gift of tongue, she says, and I believe her. But she doesn't do it publicly. She says she does it between her and God. And I think that's appropriate. If there's no interpreter, don't do it in public. Paul says about prophecy, two or three prophets should speak and the other should weigh carefully what is said. And, it is, and if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophecy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. During this time, right, during this early church, the Spirit of God was just really upon his people. And people had the ability to receive direct revelation from God, right? Like, God just spoke to people directly. I think that's what Paul has in mind here. Paul is saying, 
Paul is acknowledging that that gift exists, that God directly reveals his will to people during the service. But Paul is saying, that is great, but even prophecy at worship has to be done in an orderly way. You need to speak in turn, one by one. Just don't start rattling rattling off prophecy and cut people off when they're speaking. You should take turns, one by one, in revealing God's God's, message to the church. Right? But to the rest of the congregation, Paul is saying, whatever prophecy that is you know, proclaimed during worship service, you need to be very careful. You need to be very discerning whether that prophecy is true. Just because someone has, someone says, I received a direct revelation of God, that may or may not be true. So you need to test it. Just don't believe everyone, anyone who says they got a direct revelation from God. You need to, to be discerning. How are you discerning? You need to be discerning as you are familiar with God's word. The only way that you can properly discern whether someone is a true prophet or false prophet is if that person's utterings is consistent with God's revealed will in his word. If you do not know what God's word says, how can you be discerning when someone claims to receive prophecy? Paul is saying the only way that you can be wise and discerning is if you know the word of God. If you do not know the word of God, then you're naive and you're a dum-dum and you cannot discern. Paul is saying once again, he's emphasizing the orderliness of worship. Prophets take turns one at a time. If someone, receives a, if someone receives a revelation, the guy who's speaking must stop and let the other one speak. See how it's orderly? Like, I was watching, like, you know, a passion concert, church con- Is it a service? Did they call it a service? I guess they call it a service. I, watched, I was watching a passion, like, New York service. Everyone was passionate. It was great. Right? Everyone was really into the word, and they go, not into the word, because they don't really preach the word. Right? Like they were into the music. Right? And like they were feeling something. That's all great and stuff. But the focus of worship is is not a passionate display. The focus of worship should be order and intelligibility. Why? Because God is verse thirty verse thirty three. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Every worship service must glorify God. You understand? Every, everything that we do must glorify God. And the way you glorify God is by revealing his characteristics in your life. When we think about glorifying God, we, we think about oftentimes the great sacrifices we have to make for God. Right? We glorify God by giving God a lot, a lot of money. We glorify God by going to a remote place. We think glorifying God involves act of great act of sacrifice. Glorifying God is, is more than that. Glorifying God is revealing his character in your life. For example, a husband 
who loves his wife as Christ loves the church. A husband who respects his wife, right? Which I need to work on, because I, I said something stupid this morning, right? But a, a, a man who strives to understand his wife and, and sacrifices himself for her, re- glorifies God because doing that reveals God's Christ's love for his people. You forgiving someone who wronged you glorifies God because God forgave and loved you even though you wronged him. Working in the most excellent way in your job glorifies God because God does excellent work. Right? God has got a perfection. He says work is excellent. If you do an excellent job, that glorifies him because that reflects his excellence. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Cool. You glorify God not only by doing acts of sacrifice, but you, re- you glorify God by revealing his character in your life. How do you glorify God in worship? You, re- you glorify God in worship by revealing his character, which is order and peace and not a confusion. God is a God of order, right? In the Bible, God is a God of order. How do you know? The very nature of God, like the Old Testament is full of that example. For, like, number one, the very nature of God is order. Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit, right? They're all equal God. They're all, in, in, all, in essence, they're all equal. God the Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God. But even within the Godhead, there is order. The Father commands, the Son submits, the Spirit is sent. There is a divine functional hierarchy, an order in the Godhead. The nature of God himself is a that of order. How, do you, how did God create the world? He created the world day by day, step by step, right? He created light. He created expanse. He created, you know, like, there's an order of salvation. There's an order of creation. There's an order of salvation. How did, how did God save all of you? He started, from the, he started from Abraham, right? He called Abraham in the nation of Israel, and through the nation of Israel, Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Like, right, Christ was born in Israel, and from Israel, right, the first converts were Jews. The first apostles were Jews, and the Jews took the, the message of Jesus Christ all over the world. There was an order in which he saved people. Old Testament, right? The reason why Leviticus and Deuteronomy is so hard, Numbers, Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers is so hard to go through, is because it is painstakingly details of how everyone should worship God. There is painstaking detail of what priests should do in how, in, when, when preparing for worship. There is painstaking details of the order in which you celebrate holy days. There's a painstaking details in, in order in which how you, how you lift up sacrifices to the Lord. There is order in the Bible because God is a God of order. God is not a God of confusion. God is a God of order and intelligibility. Therefore, 
You need to worship God accordingly. I think people who lead services like you and me, I think secretly, we expect every Sunday to be like this powerful, passionate, right? Like this, this great, like, emotion. We want you to have this great emotion experience. But God is saying, rather than focusing on the response that, that, that you try to elicit from people, you need to make the service orderly and intelligible. Orderly worship, intelligible worship, reflects the order and the intelligibility of God. That's how you glorify God in worship services. God is not primarily glorified through ecstatic emotion experiences. He's glorified in the orderliness and the intelligibility of worship. Verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. What is the word peace that Paul talks about here? It means harmony and unity. Different pieces of people coming together and forming one unified voice. Best example I can give you is orchestra, right? Um, my family is a very musical family besides me. And, you know, um, one of the things, one of the great sacrifices I make for, as a husband is I go to the Kennedy Center with my wife and I listen to classical music that I don't know for an hour and a half. That's love, man, right? I pay for those tickets, like 70 bucks a pop, right? Sit there listening to music that I have no idea what's, what's that about, right? I don't know what the music is, right? But all I know is when I'm sitting in the middle section of the Kennedy Center and when the National Symphony Orchestra is playing, I am swept away by their harmony and unity. There are like hundreds of pieces of instruments, when they play, when the pros play, they all come together and make one great sound. That's why, by the way, elementary school orchestras are like the most painful experiences of my life. Because, man, people, kids can't harmonize, right? It's like the worst, and it's like torture. Hi, Charlotte, if you're looking, listening to me. There is, that's what God means, Paul means when God is peace, order, comes. Harmony comes. Unity comes. Side note. The consequences of sin is, you lo- is us losing peace. Losing peace means f- being fragmented. The consequences of sin is fragmentation, division. And the, and the, and the consequence of salvation is unity and peace. My mom, I spoke to my mom a couple of days ago, and she was talking to me about um, this pastor that she knows, right? And this pastor had, like, marriage, marriage issues. They just, him and his wife just hated each other. Oh, they hated each other. Oh, man, do they, hated each, they hated each other, right? After a while, they don't even know why they hate each other. They just hated each other. And my mom says, that person, that pastor and his wife, as a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, went to a prayer mountain, because there are a lot of prayer mountains in Korea, that's what we get our business done, right? So she went to the prayer mountain, and they prayed and prayed and prayed about their marriage. And my mom says, like, you know, the last night, the pastor had a vision. Not, not a vision. When he was sleeping, he dreamt that evil, dark forces were evaporating from his, from his body. And when he got up the next morning, he felt no animosity towards his wife anymore. 
He says, I prayed, I prayed, I prayed, I fell asleep. I had a vision of the evil spirits leaving me. And when I woke up, I felt no more hatred towards my wife. Very dramatic Korean stories. But the point is this. When you seek after him, when he works in your life, one of the fruits of his working in your life is unity. Broken relationships become mended and things become harmonized again. Paul says, worship service has to reflect this character. Where if one person does his thing, the other person does his, does, does his own thing during worship. If there is no harmony in worship, that is not a God-honoring worship. Everyone participates in an orderly way. That is how you worship God. This is a long introduction to what we're going to study now. Because you need to understand this to understand what Paul is trying to say. Let's go. Let's go to the passage that can get me fired from my job. All right. Verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For, oh my, oh boy, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Let's pray and we'll go, we'll end. We can't do that, right? We've got to explain what it is. Once again, context is order of worship, right? But before I unpack it, let's be clear. Paul is not a male chauvinist pig, right? Modern people interpret these verses to, meet, to think that he is, but he isn't. Women played a very important role in Paul's ministry, right? For example, um, the, like in Romans 16, Paul, you know, prays for the woman called Phoebe, right? A deaconess of the church. What Phoebe did was, um, after Paul wrote Romans, which is the most advanced theologically, um, you know, profound letter ever written, he gave the letter to Phoebe so that Phoebe would deliver that letter to the churches. Without Phoebe, the letter to Romans would not have been distributed. One of Paul's great missionary partners is a woman named Priscilla, who was, I think, a fashion designer at the time. With her husband, Aquila, Priscilla helped Paul found the church in Corinth. Priscilla and her husband, Aquila, right, also taught Apollos Bible study. You know Apollos? Remember Apollos? Apollos, the guy who taught really well, right? People wanted to follow Apollos rather than Paul. Apollo was a, Apollos was effective because Priscilla and Aquila, her husband, instructed him on the way of the Lord. Women occupied a major part of Paul's ministry. So there is in no way that Paul thinks women are second-class citizens, right? And in fact, the, the, the claim, any claim that says men are better than women, right, or women are second-class citizens, 
that is antithesis to the gospel. That is blasphemy. How do you know? Paul says, wives, submit to your husband as husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And, you know, and, and wives submit to your husbands, right? He's referring to the Trinity. In the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they're all in essence God, but God the Son submits to God the Father. It doesn't mean that God the Son is any less equal to God the Father, is any less important than God the Father. It's just that functional role is different. And so if you say, if women are second-class citizens compared to men, you are saying Christ is a second-class God compared to God the Father, which is blasphemy, and it is not true. So let's, that, let's make that very clear in Paul's intent. He is, not, he is not diminishing the value of women at all. But when he's writing verse 34 and 35, he is referring to the order of creation. Remember, God is a God of order, and in the Godhead there is, there is a functional hierarchy. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 and 4 reminds us of this hierarchy. Remember when we talked about this? The head of Christ is God. The head of man is Christ. And the head of, head of woman is man. There is a functional hierarchy. And in order for you to worship God properly, you need to be orderly. You need to especially be mindful of the order that God created the world. Right? You glorify God by, by having orderly worship. And you have orderly worship by respecting the order of creation. That's what Paul means. Understand, Jamie? So far, so good? Not, not being fired yet? Good. So he's saying, women should not speak. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he's not allowing women to be silent at church. It, it, doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't mean that. Of course he doesn't mean that. And it doesn't even mean that he's forbidding women to prophecy. How do you know? 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5. He says, women can prophesy. When, when women prophesy, they should have their heads covered, which implies Paul allows women to prophesy in church. But in 1 Corinthians 14, 14, what he's saying here is, I think you've got to look at the, the context in which he's saying. And the context in which he's teaching is this. What time is it? Jeepers, creepers, I've got to end soon. Man, so much to teach. All right, so within the context, he's, he's referring to the not speaking part within the context of prophecy, right? Once again, let's, let, let's, let's, let's talk about what's happening in the church. People are getting direct revelation from God during worship service, and they're speaking that direct revelation of God to the people. The ability to receive revelation and communicate that revelation as the church is gathered, that is authority. Do we understand? Prophecy is getting revelation from God and sharing that revelation. That Getting the revelation and sharing the revelation when the people are gathered is an exercise of spiritual authority. 
And if a woman during, I mean, if a woman, right, receives direct prophecy from the Lord during worship service, and when she speaks, when the church is gathered, and when she speaks that prophecy to men, she is exercising her authority over men. And that exercise of authority over men is going against the divine hierarchy. So women are permitted to prophecy in church. Of course they are. But they are not permitted to prophecy when the church is gathered together because doing so, she is exercising her authority. Women's place in the creative order is that of submission and not authority. It's not my opinion. That's how God created the order of salvation creation to be. God, Christ, man, woman. A woman prophesying during worship services is going against this order. And God is a God of order, not chaos. Right? So I think that's what Paul means when he says women are not allowed to speak. Women should be submissive, Paul says. He's not saying to be submissive to be a male chauvinist pig. He's saying to be submissive in regard to the created order of things. Let's briefly talk about submission. Thing about things to be mindful of submission is, once again, it is a divine created order. As Christ submits to God the Father, wives submit to your husbands. But gentlemen, you must really understand, right? As women submit to you, just as important, more important than women's, your wives submitting to you, is your exercise of biblical leadership. Maybe your wives have a hard time submitting to you because you're not exercising biblical leadership. When we think of women's submission, we always think about what women need to sacrifice. But before we think about what women need to sacrifice, think what men are called to do. You are called to lead. Not lead in a general patent or Donald Trump, I do what I say and you better do what I say. That is not biblical leadership, right? Biblical leadership in terms of sacrifice. Wanting the best for her and your family. Taking the initiative to do so. Makes her submission to you easier. If you're saying, do whatever I say, then you're not exercising biblical leadership and God will keep held you accountable for that. Submission happens as men exercise biblical leadership. It does not, but, but keep in mind, there are parts of the Bible that says, even if your husband is an unbeliever, wives should still strive to submit. And that's true. But if you are a Christian, men, you are called so that your wives will gladly submit to you. Right? Second thing about biblical submission. Submission is not so much doing whatever your husband says to do. The world of submission is support. You've got to think of that role as support. God has called husbands and men to be a certain thing, to do certain things. 
Men cannot do what they're called to do unless they have your support. The reason why God has blessed you with intelligence and courage and, 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 and you know, and, and, and verbal expression is so that with your gifts you can support your husband so that your husband can make a good, so your husband can make, you know, can lead better, right? Presidents are only effective as their advisors are. That's true. Submission is not this blind follow wherever I go. It's, it's also a role of support. And three, you need to understand, when you think about submitting, you are not submitting to your husband per se, but you're submitting to Christ. Because your husband is not your true head. Your true head is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has placed you with your husband, and you are called to submit to your husband's, but your true Lord is Christ. So you submit for his sake and not yours, and not for your husband's sake, okay? That's what Paul says. So women, respect the order of creation during worship services. Don't prophesy during worship services, right? Respect, acknowledge your place in the created order. Everyone Clear? No one's walking out, leaving the church? After he talks about women, he, talk, he, talk, he, he, he goes to, he envisions objections to his teaching. Verse 36, Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? What is he talking about? When he's writing these verses, he's envisioning people disagreeing with him. Right? People who have the gift of prophecy and gift of tongues in Corinth thought they were, like, spiritually mature. Right? They had authority. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, use your gift of prophecy, but you need to do it in an orderly way. You just can't exercise it to win whenever you want it. So he's putting a limitation on the exercise of their gifts. People who spoke tongues in Corinth thought they were really important because pagan prophets also spoke in some strange languages. So they thought if you have the ability to speak in tongues, you're someone really special. Well, what is Paul saying? Paul is saying if there's no interpreter, you shouldn't speak tongues. So he's limiting the use of tongues. Oh my goodness. And to women, he says, you women who ask all these questions, go ask your husband. So he's also limiting the role of women. Do you think people would like that? No. People will disagree with him and will not want to follow what he says. To them, he's saying, verse 36, 37, Or did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that I am writing to you in, to you is the Lord's command. What he's saying is this. He's saying, these instructions that I'm giving you is not from me. It's from the Lord. This letter that I'm writing to you is not my opinion about things. It's, the Lord, it's, the, it's Jesus' word. You know Jesus, the creator of all things? You know Jesus, the source of truth? You know Jesus, the creator of reality? It is his words. 
And if you disagree with these words, you're not disagreeing with me. You are disagreeing with him. That's what Paul is trying to say in verse 36. Verse 36 is sarcasm, by the way. You guys think you're all important, but I want to ask you, did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people that it has reached? He's being sarcastic here. He's saying, don't think of yourself as very important because you have these gifts. More important than the exercise of these gifts is obedience to Lord's law. Right? And Paul says in verse 37, but if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. What is he saying? If you ignore these things that I write to you, if you're not going to practice what I write to you, if you're not going to obey these things, then in the end, Christ will ignore you. That's what he's saying. This is similar to what Jesus is warning in Matthew chapter 7. He says, on the last day, on the judgment day, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, look what I have done in your name. I have prophesied. I have performed many miracles. Lord, even the demons obey me. I've done all these spectacular things for you. And what would Jesus say? Jesus says, get, a, get away from me. I do not know you. Why? Because you are doers of evil. Jesus warns on the last day when people come to him and claim they knew him because they did all these spectacular things and yet did not obey his word, Jesus will say, I never knew you. More important than the exercise of any spiritual gifts is the obedience to God and his law. One of the first interview questions that SBC Embrace asked me when I was interviewing here, someone asked me, do you believe the gift of tongues? And I said, okay, if you tell me you have the gift of tongues, I'll tell you, hey, good for you. Now go obey God's, now, now go obey God's law. That's what I said. Such, such a good answer. If you have gift of tongues, fine, good for you. Right? Use it to go get closer to God. But the important thing is, it's not the exercise of the gift per se, but your obedience. And to obey his law, you need to know his word, right? Look, I know a lot of unbelievers. And the funny thing about unbelievers that I know, they judge Christianity because they think they know what Christianity is about. Even though they have never opened up a Bible and bothered to read it, they have no problem judging it because they just think that they know. I know so many Christians who don't read the Word, and yes, they're lazy and stuff, but the reason why they don't, primarily the reason why they don't read the Word is because they think they know. Even though their knowledge of the Bible has stopped, has not evolved since middle school, they still think they know what's in God's law. And that's why they don't read it. Unbelievers don't read it because they think they know. Believers don't read it because they think they know. But the question is, if you think you, but if you don't know the word, how can you obey it? And if you don't obey it, he's going to ignore you. We get so caught up in the secondary issues of Christianity. Right? I don't know, like, I mean, okay, serving the church is not a secondary issue. That's, a, that's a really important. But the most important thing with your relationship with the Lord is your understanding of his word and his word transforming you. 
But if you do not let him give you, if you don't give him that opportunity to transform you and, and you obey, he's, not gonna, he's gonna ignore you. That's the warning in verse 30, 37. What is the word of God teaching us? It's revealing. God is the foundation of reality. And the only way that you can be born again is to believe in Jesus Christ. That's the Bible in a nutshell. As you open up the word and study it, this understanding becomes deeper and deeper and deeper. Your understanding of who God is, your understanding of who Jesus is, your understanding of what's up, why you needed to be saved, it becomes deeper and deeper and deeper as more you know God. If your understanding of it stays in the shallow end, God, how can God transform you? Take the revealed word. The Bible that you have in your phones, the Bible you have in your lap is a direct revelation of God. Do not ignore it. That's Paul's warning. Let us pray. Father, you, have, you are God of order and you are God of peace. And you are the God of intelligibility. Father, not acknowledging you and not knowing you causes great chaos in our personal lives, internally and externally. All the sins that we commit, all the rebellious acts, all the addictions, all the, all the foolish decisions, and all the... All the Confusion in our heads comes from the fact that we do not know you, we do not, we do not pursue after you, we do not think after your thoughts. And the way you set us free is by intelligently, intelligi intelligibly communicating your will to us. Father, the way our church is restored and grow is as we, Father, know your word and obey your word and, and lead worship based on this, this truth. That is how you are going to build up this church. So, Father, in order, for us to be, in order for this church to be built up, all of us need to pursue after you in our thoughts, in our reading, in our studies. We pray, dear God, that may you continually reveal yourself to us through your word. And may that revelation, Lord, transform us, turn our chaotic lives into an orderly life. May, us, may, may, may the understanding of your word lead us to obedience to your word so that we will conform to the image of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for the members of our church. We pray those who are experiencing pain and loss and worries in this fallen world. Lord, this world is a work in progress. And all of us, Lord, are experiencing the fallenness and the tragedies living within it. We have parents who are suffering and who are ill. We have employments that are lost. We have conflicts, Lord, that we do not know how to get out of. We have depressions. We have unforgiveness issues. We have all these issues, Lord, living in this world, Lord, all, many of my church congregants, all of us are going through it. But Lord, you do not leave us alone in our confusion. You give us, you renew us 
by your spirit and your truth. We pray, Lord, that you will continually minister to us and use all these tragedy in our lives to reveal the faithfulness of God. Father, we pray that you continually build up this church, Lord. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.